you have a Bible, you can uh, go ahead and open to First uh, Thessalonians. We had over the weekend, we had turkey on Thursday and brisket on Friday, so I kind of have a meat hangover today. Um, but that's not a bad thing. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good thing, a very good thing. <laughs> Um, we're making our way through First uh, Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 2 today, uh, looking at verses 9 uh, to 12, so just a few short verses. Last week, uh, Pastor Brent had the section where, where Paul got to talk about how they were very motherly towards the Thessalonians. Today, I get the passage where they get to talk about how fatherly they were uh, to the Thessalonians. I just want to read our passage, and then, uh, and then we'll talk about it. So First uh, Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory." So we have quite a bit uh, in these few short verses, but, but kind of the overarching uh, thing that I want to drive at today is what it looks like to walk worthy, what it looks like to walk worthy in a manner of the gospel of God. And Paul starts out in verse 9 by calling to their remembrance uh, the labor and toil that Paul and Timothy uh, and Silvanus or Silas uh, did while they were among them. Paul reminds them that they worked night and day so that they wouldn't be a burden to any of them while they engaged in the ministry of the gospel. Now, think about this with Paul. If you know anything about the life of the Apostle Paul, you know that, that he was probably the greatest evangelist that, that possibly has walked the earth, right? We, we have record of his life. We have the letters that he wrote. Uh, and we know that from the time he came to faith in Christ... He was a persecutor of the church before he came to faith in Christ. He had standing in the world. He was somebody. He was respected. He was revered uh, among people of his day. And then he came to faith in Christ and, and immediately turned from being a persecutor of the church to being persecuted on behalf of the church. Just an amazing transformation uh, in his life. And Paul would travel around from place to place, establishing churches, establishing elders, uh, going into synagogues and town squares and public places, uh, proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And it got him in trouble everywhere that he went. He spent time in jail. Uh, Paul, I think in 2 Corinthians, talks about how Every boat he got on, he was shipwrecked. He went days without food. He was beaten. He was tortured. He kind of gives this list of just all the terrible things that have happened to him in the name of Christ for the sake of the ministry of the gospel. And he reminds the Thessalonians here in this passage that they worked and they labored and they toiled while they were among them day and night. And I point this out because Paul was not trying to live the American dream of his day. Paul wasn't trying to live the Jewish dream or whatever they had back then. Paul wasn't trying to necessarily live his best life now like we do here in the West. Paul worked tirelessly on behalf of the gospel. Paul worked a day job so that he would support himself so that he wouldn't be a burden to anyone, so he wouldn't have to rely on anyone. So kind of tent maker by day, preacher by night. And, and Paul would, when he would go into a place, he would first go to the synagogue and he would reason with the Jewish people, proclaiming to them the scriptures. This was an effort on Paul's 
part to lead by example what it looks like to work hard for the sake of the gospel. And I want to say on the, from the outset here that, that the message today is not one that says try harder to be better. Right? Understand that's not the gospel. The message of the gospel is not try harder to be better. So don't hear that today. But we do see Paul reminding the people how hard they worked while they were among them for a couple of reasons, to not be a burden and to proclaim the message of the gospel. Paul didn't want to be accused of profiting from the gospel. Paul, elsewhere in his writings, would, would say that, that it's the right of the minister of the gospel to live by the gospel. In other words, that, that if you do what Paul does, you had every right to receive your income, your support from that work. But at the same time, Paul would say that I, I set aside that right. Even though I rightfully could draw an income from this, I set that right aside because I don't want anybody to think weird things about the gospel or about me so that it wouldn't be a burden to him. And, and you have, in this church here at the door, three pastors who feel very much the same way. In our context, Pastor Dave and Pastor Brent are supported full-time by the church. I'm supported part-time by the church. But we've all said before and made it known that, that if that were to go away tomorrow, we would still figure out a way to be pastors <laughs> because it's that important to us. Um, answering the call of God on our life. And this is what Paul is bringing to their remembrance as well. And I don't bring that up to, to pat anyone on the back. It's just the simple fact that, that when God calls someone to the work of the ministry, nothing else is more important in that person's life. Paul didn't want to be a burden. Paul wanted to lead by example. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says this. He says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Again, this is not Paul trying to live some version of the American dream or his best life now. This is Paul saying that I'll sacrifice whatever is required to be sacrificed in order that you might come to know Christ. Nothing else is more important. Paul in his letters, you never see him writing saying, I have these needs, my retirement account is a little bit low, I'm worried about the future. He doesn't write those kinds of things. Paul doesn't talk about how the work of the gospel is hard on his body as he gets older. He doesn't talk about that. I'm not saying that those things aren't important, but you just don't see Paul talk about those things. But what he does say here is that if me becoming poor and giving all things similar to what Christ has done for you, if that would mean that you would come to know Christ, then okay, sign me up. And this is how Paul lived his life. So he's reminding them of their labor and their toil, how they worked day and night so that they wouldn't be a burden as they proclaimed to the Thessalonians the gospel of God. Now remember the context of this church as well. This church is only probably a few months old at the writing of this letter. And when Paul started this church, it caused quite the commotion in Thessalonica. The church was not popular. Even with as weird as things are now, people don't generally in America come against new churches. Even generally, people aren't saying, you know, we need less churches, right? If, if you, even if you're not a person of faith and you hear about a church starting up down the road, you, you don't necessarily think ill thoughts towards that church. Well, in Thessalonica, when this church started, the city was in an uproar. People didn't like it. People didn't like it at all. And so they're, they're facing this tremendous opposition, right, as a brand new church. And so just a few months into facing this opposition, Paul is writing them a letter saying, remember how we worked hard among you. And we didn't work hard just for the sake of working hard. We worked hard so that we could proclaim to you as we worked day and night the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We sacrifice so that we could proclaim to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 10, he reminds them again, you are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. He reminds them of how they saw them live. Now, Paul and Timothy and Silas certainly were not perfect men. And I don't think he's saying here that they are or were perfect men in this example, but he says that you saw how we lived among you. Right? Paul, Paul didn't just show up and wasn't interested in, in investing in people. Right? He was part of their lives so that they could see firsthand his conduct. And if that weren't enough, God who sees all, God from whom nothing is hidden, certainly saw their conduct. Their holiness, their righteousness, their blamelessness was on display for the Thessalonians to see. Paul, in, in other writings, other places, he would say that he's the chief of sinners, so he certainly knows himself that he's not a perfect man. But what he's reminding the Thessalonians of is that as they lived upright lives, they sacrificed, as they worked, as they labored, as they toiled, as they supported themselves, that what really was on display is, is not their righteousness or their holiness, but the truth of the gospel. So not only were they proclaiming the good news of the gospel, but they were living the gospel as well. And I think these are two things that, that rightly go hand in hand. If you, if you proclaim the gospel, think about it this way. If you proclaim the gospel, but you don't have a life that, that lines up with what you proclaim, nobody's going to listen to your message, right? Because you're a hypocrite. If all you ever do is live it and, and you never speak it, how is anybody ever going to hear the good news? And so what Paul is putting together here is that we proclaimed to you the gospel of God and we lived in front of you the gospel of God. And when those two things are present in the life of the believer, it brings power to the message. And the power is ultimately in, in the Holy Spirit, not you or not me. But when we, when we say something and we live it and those two things line up, people pay attention to that. It brings power to the message. And Paul reminds them of this, that they saw, not only did they hear, but they also saw the gospel being lived out day in and day out, the proclamation and the embodiment of the gospel together hand in hand. Then in verse 11, he says, you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Now, the previous passage, like I said before, he talks about how they were motherly with him and they cared for them and they nurtured them and they were gentle and they were kind. And, and in this passage, he talks about how they were fatherly to them and they exhorted and they encouraged and they charged. And so what Paul is getting at here is that maybe these were a little more difficult conversations than kind of the motherly side of what they did, right? So, so they cared and they loved uh, the people, but they also had hard conversations with them, and they charged them, and they exhorted them, and they encouraged them. He likens himself to a father. In Luke chapter 11, verses 11 to 13, it says this, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And what Jesus is reminding, of us, reminding us of here is that even evil fathers, like sinful men, broken and flawed men, such, such as all of us here today, 
know how to give good gifts to our kids. And if we do that, how much more does our Heavenly Father know how to be the perfect Father to us, right? And Paul is reminding the Thessalonians that he was fatherly to them. He was fatherly to them in really three ways that we see in the text. He was fatherly in how he exhorted them, he was fatherly in how he encouraged them, and he was fatherly in what he charged them with. To exhort is to strongly urge somebody. Have you ever had to exhort someone in your life? Have you ever had to sit down with with a child or even with a friend or a family member and strongly urge them towards something? And not necessarily in a contentious sort of a way, but just to strongly urge them. This is what Paul did when he exhorted the Thessalonians and Timothy and Silas. They exhorted them. They encouraged them to believe in Christ. They implored them. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that, that knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we, we don't gently talk to others, he doesn't say. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we don't build friendships for 10 years and then kind of mention something. He says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade, we argue. And again, not in a contentious sort of a way necessarily, but, but we compel, as far as it is up to us, others to believe in Christ. So he exhorted them as a father. He encouraged them. To encourage is to give someone support, to help them, to try to stimulate them in a direction, in, in a very positive way. And, and Paul and Timothy and Silas encouraged while they were with the Thessalonians. So not only did they exhort them, persuade them, strongly urge them in a direction, but they also encouraged them in that they helped them and that they supported them. It's not like they showed up on scene and said, everybody believe in Christ or you're going to be damned to hell. I'll see you later. He didn't do that. He proclaimed the message and lived among them and built relationships with the people as they encouraged them day by day that they would believe in Christ. Think about it this way. Kind of like as we, as we proclaim the gospel and we live the gospel, those two things go hand in hand. I think exhortation and encouragement need to go hand in hand as well. If all we ever do is strongly urge people, if all we ever do is exhort, we might come across as kind of a jerk sometimes, maybe a lot of times. If all we ever do is encourage, we might come across as soft peddling, but, but when you put those two together, again, it brings some power to the message when we exhort and when we encourage. And Paul masterfully uses these tools at his disposal in order to effectively deliver the truth of the gospel with compassion. And as he, what is it that he was exhorting and what is it that he was encouraging them to? Well, he charged them. In other words, he called them to action. He's not just calling them to belief, but he's calling them to a belief that leads to a way of living. Most of you this morning, when you got out of bed, you probably looked outside and you determined whether it looked cold or not and you dressed accordingly. Right? And you know, if you're here today, you're wearing shorts and a t-shirt, you looked outside and thought, you know what, it's not really that cold. Right? Those of you who looked outside, you thought, you know what, this is probably you know, whether to wear pants and maybe some long sleeves because you had a belief that the weather dictated that. Every single one of us lives exactly according to what we believe. 
And Paul here is charging the Thessalonians or charged them not only to belief, but to live according to that belief. And remember, they're in the middle of contention. They're in the middle of being an unpopular church plant in this kind of cultural city. Everybody's up in arms because they are there. And he's charging them or reminding them of the charge that he gave to them, not only to believe, but to live according to that belief. Ultimately, he charges them to walk in a manner worthy of God. And that's a big statement. What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of God? What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the God who is sovereign over all, meaning that he controls everything? What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the God who created the universe, who orders everything in the universe? What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the God who sacrificed his one and only son so that you and I would come to know him? What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of that? That's a tall order. He charges them to walk in a manner worthy of the God who called them into his own kingdom and glory. In order to understand this, we we have to, I'm going to throw some scriptures at you here in the next couple of minutes. We have to understand some things. Titus 3, 3 to 8 tells us that we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Kind of paints this bleak picture of humanity. And in this bleak picture of humanity, God has called us into his kingdom and glory. Is hated by others and hating one another. And it goes on to say in Titus 3, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The Bible's full of these kinds of things that say, before you came to know Christ, you were basically a dirtbag. And he loved you, not because you were lovely, but because he chose to love you. Not because of any merit of yours, but because of his own grace and his own mercy. And Paul says to insist on these things, that these things are excellent and profitable for us all. 1 Peter 2, 9-10 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, and now you have received mercy. Another one of these passages, like you weren't weren't all that great prior to coming to know Christ, but because of who Christ is and what he's done, you have reason to proclaim who he is and what he's done. This reference at the end of that passage, once you were not a people, but now you were God's people. Once you would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy is a reference to the story of the prophet Hosea. Hosea was a man who God called to marry a woman named Gomer. And God told Hosea going into it that 
this woman would be unfaithful to him over and over and over and over and over again. He said, I want you to marry this woman. And then they had some children. And the first child that they had, God tells Hosea, I want you to name this child, not my people. Right? You think you had a difficult name growing up, grew up with the name, not my people. And then the next child comes and God says, I want you to name this one, no mercy. Again, another, another hard name, right? <laughs> not my people and no mercy. And Hosea is married to an unfaithful wife, right? Pretty bleak situation. And in her unfaithfulness, God comes to Hosea and tells him, I want you to go find your wife. She's down at the brothel. Just tell you where she is. She's at the brothel. Go down and find her. And whatever the price is, pay that. Even though she's your wife, pay the price to, to buy her out of this life of unfaithfulness. And so Hosea does it. Goes down to the brothel and he, he buys his wife, even though she rightfully is his wife to begin with. And then God tells Hosea, you know that, that kid that I told you to name, not my people? I want you to change their name to my people. And this kid that I told you to name No Mercy, I want you to change that kid's name to Mercy. And it's this beautiful story of redemption. And the point of the story is not to look at Hosea and say, man, that guy's awesome. But the point of the story is to look at God and say, God is awesome in what he's done. Right? Hosea is a picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And as much as we hate to admit it, Gomer is a picture of you and me and our unfaithfulness to God, our repeated unfaithfulness to God. And even though He created us, even though we rightfully belong to Him, He bought us, He redeemed us out of this life of unfaithfulness, even though we didn't deserve it. The Scripture puts it this way, and this will be familiar to you, that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. God sent His only Son into the world to come redeem us out of this life of unfaithfulness. And so as we think back to our first Peter passage, it might help us to understand it a little more if we kind of read this in reverse order. Once you were not under God's mercy and once you were not part of God's people but he's called you out of darkness and into the light. He's redeemed you. And because that's true, that you would spend your life proclaiming his excellencies because you belong to him. This is what Paul is reminding the Thessalonians of as he calls them to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Right? We have to understand kind of our starting point in life is that we are at enmity or at war with God right out of the gate because of our sin nature. And the only way that we're not at war with God is that, that we make peace with God through Jesus Christ. And there's no other way to make peace with God. You can't be good enough to make peace with God. You can't believe hard enough to make peace with God. You can't live a life long enough where your good deeds outweigh your bad and the scales tip in your favor to make peace with God. It's not possible. The only way to make peace with God is through knowing Jesus Christ and submitting your life to Him, surrendering your life to Him in obedience. 
And so as Paul charges the Thessalonians to walk in a manner worthy of God, we have to remember that he has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, that he has called us into his kingdom and glory when we don't deserve it, when we can't earn it, when we can't achieve it. That's the gospel. Not try harder to be better. The gospel is to believe what God has done for you in Christ that you couldn't do for yourself, and even if you could, you wouldn't. And because that's true, that, that now we would live a life much like that of the Apostle Paul and the early disciples and people throughout church history who have subjected themselves to persecution and difficulty and sacrifice because that's what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the God who has called us into his kingdom and glory. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, As it is written, <clears throat> what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. We all probably have this vision of what heaven is like. If you're like me and you grew up on Looney Tunes, you might you know, see Bugs Bunny floating on a cloud, playing a harp, you know, something like that. Right? Whatever your vision of heaven is, it's not enough. Whatever you think heaven might be, it's more. It's way more. We're told in Scripture that you can't even begin to imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. You can't wrap your mind around it. The finite cannot fully grasp what's infinite. We, we, we don't possess the capability to come close to imagining. Right? We're, we're a pretty creative people, are we not? We, we can create a lot of things. We can imagine a lot of things. Right? What, what, what's happened in, in movies and television in the last 10, 20, 30, like it's remarkable what Hollywood can do and the things that they can create and, and come up with. We, we can't even begin to imagine, Scripture tells us. With our eyes, with our hear, ears, even in our heart, we, we can't begin to fathom what God has prepared for those who love Him. And we can't even begin to really wrap our minds around what eternity even is. Right? We, we think kind of now, looking forward, like eternity is you know, from this point forward forever, but we, we, we have no clue what that is. We can't grasp it. And if you really want your mind to be blown, think about eternity isn't just from now forward. Eternity is from now backwards. It's, like it's always been. It's always existed. It's always been there. We, like, we can't imagine that. We can't imagine what God has prepared for us. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that, that Jesus will spend eternity showing us his riches in kindness towards us. His immeasurable riches. We can measure a lot of things these days. We can't measure the riches of God. So again, I'll ask the question, what, what does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of God who has called us into his kingdom and glory? It, it may not be as fancy as you might think it is. Paul's charge here is not necessarily to, to live upright lives, although Paul reminds them how he lived uprightly among him, among the people. But Paul's bigger charge is wrap your mind as much as you can around eternity, around what God has prepared for those that love him, as much as you're capable of. 
Remember what God has done for you in Christ. Remember that he's redeemed you, that he's called you out of this life of unfaithfulness and and redeemed you from all of your sinfulness, all of your wickedness. And if those things are true, I say if not not in the sense of questioning, but just logically, if those things are true, then, then, then what? If it's true that God has done for us these things, if it's true that he's redeemed us, if it's true that that we can't even begin to imagine what he's prepared for us, what does that mean for our life here and now? And I think we get a glimpse just in these few verses when we see how Paul lived and Silas and Timothy, how they lived. They labored day and night, not, not in an effort to earn God's favor, not in an effort to earn anything to achieve, but they labored day and night so that they would have every opportunity to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to anybody that would listen. They worked hard, not, not, not to save for their retirement. I'm not saying that's a bad thing to do. What was in their crosshairs was people who needed to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was the most important thing. So let me, let me end with this, considering this. Considering your own way and your own life and your own activities, how, how might God be calling us to sacrifice and to serve those who still have yet to come to know Jesus Christ? I think as, as Westerners and even Americans in particular, we're pretty good at compartmentalizing our lives. Right? Can I get my work life over here and my family life over here and got some hobbies over here and maybe got my church life over here. And what we see with the Apostle Paul is like it's all the same, that there's no compartmentalization of life. Paul doesn't say, well, I'm, I'm going to go on a, a missionary journey for a few years and then I'm going to take a couple of years off and rest. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. Paul talks about spending and being spent for the sake of Christ. If you're a sports person, you might be familiar with the term like leaving it all on the field. This is what Paul would say, leave it all on the field. One pastor one time talked about the Sunday gathering saying that this is the huddle, the game is played out there. And not that our Christianity is a game and not that the gospel is a game, but hopefully, hopefully you get the point. Right? We, we gather here on Sunday mornings and we huddle up and, and, we, and we are encouraged, hopefully we're exhorted. We're charged like we are today. We get to pray for one another. We get to fellowship with one another. We get to rub elbows and hear about the things that have gone on in our lives throughout the week. But this isn't the game. We don't have a weekly game. We have a weekly huddle, and the game is played out there. And so as you go out into the world, you're charged to walk in a manner worthy of God who has called you into his kingdom and glory. Part of what that includes, like we see with the Apostle Paul, is living the gospel and proclaiming the gospel at every opportunity. When you're at work, when you're at home, when you're in the grocery store, when you're in the park, when you're doing whatever it is that you do when you're not here, every opportunity to speak the gospel and to live the gospel to those who have yet to hear the gospel in the hopes that some of those people might respond to the gospel and come to know Christ as a result of your service and your sacrifice. And again, don't, don't hear me telling you just to go out there to try harder to be better. 
the context for all of this is remembering and being reminded week after week after week. And this is always part of our huddle is reminding you of what God has done for you that compels us to go and to do for others. Again, not because we're trying to earn or achieve, but because we're trying to take as many people with us as we can with the little time that we have on this earth. And so be exhorted today to walk in a manner worthy of God. Be encouraged that God has called you out of his kingdom and into glory. Not because of you, but because he loves you and he has chosen us and given us this great task. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that it's God's plan. Not, not one plan of many, not plan A and there's plan B and there's plan C, but it's God's plan that those who have been reconciled to him or those who have been redeemed would now carry the message of redemption and reconciliation to the world. This is God's plan, the way that God has designed it to happen for you and me to go out there and to live the gospel and to proclaim the gospel at every opportunity that we have. Father, we're thankful for today. Thankful that you love us and that you care for us. Thankful that you're even mindful of us. Thankful, God, that you are the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things, yet at the same time that you involve yourself in our affairs. Thankful that in our sinfulness and in our rebellion that you um, make redemption possible through Jesus Christ. So I pray that we would be reminded today of that truth. That as we're reminded of that truth, that we would be exhorted and encouraged by the Holy Spirit to go out and proclaim and to live that truth every day in every opportunity that we can. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.